I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. A forbidden relationship leads a child to commit an unthinkable act in the name of revenge. This is the Jasmine Richardson story. Afternoon, Megan. How are you today? I'm feeling good. I've got my Diet Coke in hand and I'm ready to go. Excellent. Well, Megan, you're going to want to stay awake from this one. And I found this case through one of my students. I know which student recommended this case already. Okay. (laughs) Well, before that, I want to ask, Megan, do you give your students the same paper prompt I do about explaining a crime and attaching theory to it? Of course. I gave you that idea like eight years ago. Oh, no. (laughs) No, yes. I've been using it forever. And I always get, I have to tell you, a lot of my students will do Dahmer or Bundy or Manson. And I tell them like, please, enough with the serial killers, because I've read, I can't even tell you how many papers, but Alyssa White, not only one of my best students, but also someone who's been helping me with research for the podcast. She wrote her paper on this case. Just as a side note, I agree with you. When I have my students write their final paper, I actually now will not allow them to do Bundy, Gacy, Dahmer, BTK, uh, or Dennis Rader. What about Eileen Warnos is another one that... Yeah, no, I don't allow that anymore either. It's just, it's too much. Mm -hmm. So, but it's a different, it's totally different one in my serial killer course, because then, of course, I have to allow that. But when I'm in just theory class, I, I really ask them to focus on possibly a crime that, you know, is kind of new to us or haven't heard before. And I think this case would be new to both you and me. So we appreciate that. This case is a bit similar to one of our first cases that we covered. Oh, Um, we'll talk about it at the end because I don't want to give away kind of what happens. But I will say that this is one of those cases that reminds us that victim and offender are not mutually exclusive. Ah. They're often one in the same. And we see that time and time again with the cases we cover. And I think this is a prime example of that. Okay. All right, Megan, let's meet Jasmine. Jasmine was born on October 21st, 1993 to parents Mark and Deborah Richardson. The family lived in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. Now, Jasmine was known to all her friends and family as a very happy and social girl. She never caused any problems for her parents. She didn't really misbehave in school. She seemed to get along really well with her peers and also her parents, who were incredibly supportive of her. And she also had a very strong relationship with her younger brother, Jacob. Jacob was born when she was about four years old. So by all accounts, this was a pretty happy family. In 2006, the time of the events we will be discussing, 
Jasmine was just 12 years old and she was living at home with her two parents and again, her younger brother, Jacob, who was just eight years old. Now, although I said she was a good kid, she was going through a bit of an angsty preteen phase. Right. I have a 10-year-old daughter. I can tell you a bit about this. And I, too, was once an angsty preteen and then an angsty teen. So I understand, you know, this is where Jasmine's starting to change her music interest. She was starting to listen to punk rock music. She started wearing heavy eyeliner. Mm -hmm. And she was just always looking to go out into the world. She wanted to live life to the fullest. She didn't like her parents' rules, and she just wanted to be out with her friends. So she was a 12-year-old. Yep, pretty much. Did you have this type of stage? Were you ever angsty? I can't see you like that. I know. Yeah, I did have that one year of angst, 13 to 14. My mom said it was a rough year, and I remember it. And I remember wanting, like, my freedom, but I grew out of it pretty quickly. It it passed after about a year. That's good. Mine uh, lingered for a bit longer than that. I'm not surprised. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so besides a little rebellion, though, Mark and Deborah didn't seem to have any behavioral issues with Jasmine and nothing was too concerning at this point. However, Megan, this would all change one night in 2006 when while at a punk rock concert, she would meet a 23-year-old man by the name of Jeremy Steinke. Now, Jeremy did not have as loving of a childhood as Jasmine did. He was born in 1983 and spent his entire childhood being bullied and harassed by his classmates. And whether this teasing caused him to look for an alternative aesthetic or the aesthetic was the reason he was picked on, from the time he was around 13 years old, Jeremy dressed in goth clothing. Now, goth clothing was very popular in the 90s. And I never actually knew the official definition, and I kind of thought goth was a bit of a derogatory term, but actually goth is just simply defined as a music-based subculture, and it began in the United Kingdom during the early 1980s. Did you ever go through a stage like that or see those around you? I didn't go through it, no, but yeah, I definitely knew people who went through the goth stage as well, but I I didn't really think that much derogatory about it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Just thought it was like an expression of, you know, growing up, autonomy, different interests. That's all. Mm -hmm. I think it probably depends on what you were exposed to. You know, maybe where I grew up, unfortunately, they were treated differently. So that's why I said that. But in addition to the goth moniker, Jeremy also described himself as a 300-year-old werewolf. Now, I'm not exactly sure what this means, but I would say it's not a healthy identity. No, and I think this is where goth can go wrong or why people can hold these uh, judgments about it when it diverges into something that's beyond what the traditional goth should mean. He was also described as somebody who would wear a vial of blood on a chain around his neck. And his friends reported that he would tell them that he enjoyed the taste of blood. I feel like when you're describing him, I already hear someone who's leaning into this as hard as possible because he's not a part of mainstream society. So this is his role and he's going to lead in hard and identify hard on this. Do you know what I mean? Taking almost like an extreme position here. Yeah. And I don't think it will surprise you that in addition to some of these social difficulties, there was also a lot of trouble at home. Oh, yeah. His parents got divorced when he was quite young. His mother was an alcoholic, and she often had partners who would abuse him as a child. Mm. He was also a drug user. He drank a lot. So there's a lot going on with him. And Megan, I glossed over it, but let me just stop for a second. If you recall, Jasmine is 12 years old. She is a 12-year-old child, and Jeremy is 23 years old. Yes. We are talking about an 11-year age difference. These two should not even be talking. And as we will find out, it turns into more than talking as well. Yeah. He was also someone who was struggling with mental illness, and he also had some suicide attempts to date. Now, when these two met at the concert, Jasmine got his number and all of his social media screen names. Basically, screen name is an old term for social media handle. So she got his information and the two started talking regularly and they would officially become boyfriend and girlfriend just a few weeks later. Yeah, well, they can't officially become that, but I understand your point. Did Jeremy know that Jasmine was just 12 years old? That's a good question, and there's mixed reports on this. By all accounts, she looked much older, and she told a lot of people, including friends that she met outside of school, that she was, in fact, 16 years old. But even if she were 16, this is still not appropriate as this is a 23-year-old man. I can believe that she would look a a couple years. And in fact, I think that all the time, by the way, I see like young girls now and I'm like, oh my God, they look so much older than I think I ever did. But 
we are still talking about a significant age gap. And even if he thought she was older, he still knew that she was an underage girl. So still not okay. That is correct. And for him, it was okay because everyone he hung out with was younger than him. He was like the cool older guy that hung out with a lot of younger kids. From what I gather, their relationship was mostly online, at least in the beginning. They would chat on social media frequently and they would discuss how much they loved each other and how much they wanted to be together. Through Jeremy, Jasmine also became enamored with the goth lifestyle. So she would start dressing a little bit different, wearing heavier makeup, and the two would meet occasionally. So this is where they could have run into legal problems. Now, the age of consent in Canada is currently 16 years old, but in 2008, the age of consent was changed from just 14 years old. Now, again, Jasmine is 12 years old. Okay, keep that in mind. And we'll talk a little bit more about maybe Jeremy's perception of how old she was. But under Canada's statutory rape law, an individual cannot have consensual intercourse with a person under 16. However, there are two what's called close in age exemptions in Canada. Now, the first one allows children ages 12 or 13 to consent to sexual activity with someone who is less than two years older. Now, the second one allows 14 and 15-year-olds to consent to sexual activity with partners that are less than five years older than them. Oh, okay. So depending on the situation, the close-in-age exemption may exempt a person completely from a charge under statutory rape laws, okay. or it could just merely act as a defense to such a charge. But it really just depends on the circumstance. The reason I say this is because regardless, it's still very clear that Jasmine and Jeremy's relationship did not fall into either exemption. Right. Didn't even come close. Now, even if he thought she was 16, Amy, there's still some other legal issues here. Yes, because statutory rape falls under strict liability. And what that means is even if an individual did not know a person's age, it doesn't matter. It In other words, you don't need to establish the mens rea. The fact that the action was there is enough for a person to be charged. Because in our society, we protect children and we know that children cannot consent. And so this is like an extra layer of protection. I also think there's questions that we should talk about later about why a 23-year-old, someone in their 20s, might seek out someone who is a teenager at that level. So I think we should discuss that later on. We're talking at our conclusion. Yeah, there'll be a lot of time for discussion around that for sure. Now, beyond the illegality of this relationship, when Jasmine's parents found out that she was dating a 23-year-old man, they were quite furious, as anyone would be. Oh, yeah. They were frankly terrified that this man was grooming their 12-year-old daughter. And I think they did what any parent would do, and they forbade Jasmine from ever seeing Jeremy again. Now, Megan, do you think this is going to keep these two apart? The inclination is right. You cannot allow your 12-year-old daughter to have contact with the 23-year-old man. Mm -hmm. I I think it's terrifying. I'm sure that would scare you to death. But unfortunately, you know, when we see parents do something like forbid their child to, to see someone else, then usually that just makes the child want to do it more. It's an awful conundrum to be in. And I don't even know if they considered seeking legal help. Is it possible that they didn't even know that this was a legal issue? I mean, they probably were just thinking about protecting their daughter. Exactly. I I agree. At that point, they did whatever they thought they could do to help the situation. And that was just to ground their daughter, not let the two talk. At some point, they took away her computer so that the two couldn't chat. And as you said, this made Jasmine extremely angry. This was her first relationship. To her, she was in love and she needed to be with this boy. Well, this man, actually. Jeremy was angry, too. And while Mark and Deborah were able to keep them from physically seeing each other, they started talking again online. Now, I mentioned they took away the computer. Right. But Jasmine would go to a local library and use their computer. Right. And at some point, they did give her the computer back, so she would find other ways. The two of them talked on a website called VampireFreaks.com. So this used to be a social media site for people that identified as goth. But today it's actually a popular online clothing store. Wow. I've never heard of it. Okay. Yeah. And this vampire social media site was sponsored by Nexopia, which is Canada's first online social network for ages 14 and up. At some point it was lower to 13. But either way, my point is, you know, this is similar to Friendster and MySpace. And in fact, Jasmine was too young to be on here anyway. But as I see with my kids, these sites will say, enter a birth date. Oh. And a 12-year-old is savvy enough to know how to change the date to make it look like she's old enough to have an account on these sites. Of course, that's not a real layer of protection. 
No. Now, on the site, users were able to create and design profiles. They were able to create lists of friends, blogs. It also had some sort of like internal personal messaging system where public users could comment. So again, it's very similar to MySpace, Friendsters, right. even Facebook, I'd say. Well, you know, what's interesting, Megan, is this is still around today, but it's much more strict because they face criticism of predators using the site to locate victims. Of course. It seems likely that Mark and Deborah didn't know that Jasmine was still communicating with Jeremy online. The two would message each other. They would talk about how they were meant to be together and how they needed to find a way to get around the parental ban. Eventually, after much discussion, the two came up with a plan. These two decided that they were going to kill Jasmine's parents so that they could run away and be together forever. Goodness. That escalated pretty quickly, I'd have to say. Mm -hmm. In fact, conversations on Jasmine's online account showed a particular message sent from Jasmine to Jeremy that read, I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. To which he responded, I love your plan and we need to discuss the details. So this was her idea. Well, that's up for debate. It's, it might seem yeah. at first that this was her idea. Okay. It, it does seem like she's initiating it. Okay. Unfortunately, you know, this wasn't just talk. These two put their plan into action. On the night of April 23rd, 2006, Jeremy spent some time with various friends using various substances. Some reports say he drank as many as 12 beers, used ecstasy, smoked weed, and also used cocaine. Oh, my goodness. While on all of these substances, he then met Jasmine at her house and he came prepared with a knife. He was also wearing a black ski mask and a black outfit. In the early morning hours, Deborah woke up because she heard a noise in the basement. Now, at first, she thought this might have been Jasmine sneaking out because Jasmine did often sneak out. And she was grounded at this time, so she assumed it was Jasmine. Fortunately, Deborah went downstairs to check it out, and when she got there, she was met by Jeremy, who viciously stabbed her multiple times as soon as she walked through the basement door. Oh, my God. Her screams then woke up her husband, Mark, who ran downstairs, grabbing a screwdriver on his way. When he got downstairs, he saw this masked man stabbing his wife. Mark fought Jeremy pretty hard. He took the screwdriver and gouged his eyes with it. And at some point, Mark actually had the upper hand in this fight. But unfortunately, Jeremy got control of Mark and stabbed him over 20 times, killing him. What about Jacob? What about the eight-year-old? Well, Jasmine came out of her room when she heard the screaming and she made her way to her brother's room. To protect him? You would hope so. But Jeremy and Jasmine had actually debated on whether they would spare the eight-year-old. Jasmine, at first, went into her brother's room and somewhat comforted him. He was scared. He heard the yelling. He didn't know what was going on. At which point, Jacob said to his sister, I'm scared. I'm too young to die. Jasmine had tried to smother him. And then she ended up stabbing him in the chest. And Jeremy met her in the bedroom and slit the eight-year-old's throat. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's really awful, Amy. I was really hoping that you weren't going to go in that direction. Do we know what the motive was? Was it simply because he was a witness or was there another motive? That's a good question because it's very clear that the motive for killing her parents was so that she could be together with Jeremy. Right. Why would she not spare her brother's life? Now, she claims that she had to kill him because she felt guilty leaving him as an orphan without his parents. So she felt that he was better off dead, which is absolutely awful. Okay. Yeah. After killing her entire family, Jasmine collected her things. She had packed up a book bag because she was planning on going on the run with Jeremy. In fact, Megan, as she gathered her things, Jeremy kind of freaked out and he left her at the house. Whoa. Yeah. So she called a cab and took a cab to a nearby 7-Eleven. She bought some gum and then she headed over to Jeremy's mother's trailer. There, the two had sex. And then they would meet up with friends and they would go to a few parties. They were seen at some house parties where many people say they were all over each other, making out in public. And some say they were even bragging about what they had done. I was going to ask that if they were talking about it, because I assumed that was it. They were going to start talking about it and that's how they get caught immediately. Hmm. Well, we'll see what happens. But they 
I think they were pretty proud of what they did. No one reported her being upset. Her whole family was just murdered. And she seemed like going on living her life. Oh, I hate to say this because it, it, I don't want to glorify this in any way, but there is such a phenomenon like a euphoria that happens after you've been planning these crimes and commit them. So they probably were in this false euphoric stage mm -hmm. that does not last long, by the way. Nope, it certainly would not last long. How long are they on the run before the family is discovered? And how are they discovered? Is it a neighbor? They didn't show up Ugh. to work? I'm just curious how this plays out. Yeah, it's very sad, actually. A six-year-old boy who was a neighbor, who was one of Jacob's best friends, came to the house to play with Jacob as he normally did. This was around 1 p.m. the next day. Well, tell me he opened the door and found them. Well, what he did is he knocked on the door. Nobody was answering. So he was looking through windows and he looked in the basement window and saw Mark and Deborah lying on the floor, at which point he ran back to his house and alerted his parents, who then called 911. Okay. And when the police got to the scene, it was described as one of the worst crime scenes any of them have ever seen. Yeah. And at first, they thought that Jasmine Richardson was the victim of a kidnapping because the rest of the family is found dead and she was nowhere to be seen. Sure. That's probably the likely the assumption at the time. Yeah. They were probably really worried about her. They were very worried, although they were obviously worried about what happened to this family. Their primary objective at this point was to find the missing 12-year-old girl. So as part of their initial investigation, they went to the school and they went through Jasmine's locker to see if they could find any evidence as to, you know, maybe where she could be or who could have wanted to take her. And this is where they found some pictures drawn by Jasmine. These drawings show two people lighting a house on fire with Jasmine's family still inside. And it went on to tell this gruesome story about these two people who kill this family. So now the police have a new idea and they, rather than being a victim, Jasmine is now quickly a suspect in this triple homicide. Do they have any digital data at this point? Yeah, so they did get access to computers and they were very quickly able to see that Jasmine had this relationship. And now they were looking, of course, for Jasmine and her 23-year-old boyfriend, Jeremy. Okay. And it wasn't too hard to track these two because... Oh, sure. It turns out that they had told many people, and although people didn't believe them, once people started hearing the news stories, a lot of the, quote, friends came forward and yeah. gave tips that led the police to track down these two who were found in a car with three or four other teenagers. They were allegedly found in the back of a pickup truck and Jasmine was found without pants on and kissing Jeremy. Were they making any attempt to flee here? I mean, if they wanted to be together and flee, I understand, by the way, that a 12 year old mm -hmm. and this 23 year old, they're not criminal masterminds. But did it not occur to them that they should probably leave? So they were found almost 100 miles away. Oh, OK. So they were, I guess you could say maybe they were. On their way to flee, I have a feeling that they just didn't plan anything. So they were kind of driving around with friends, going to parties, stopping at different places. But it doesn't seem like they had any sort of getaway plan. Right. And their behavior was certainly not the behavior of two people that seemingly just murdered three people in cold blood. In fact, when Jasmine was arrested, it was said that her affect was kind of giggling and the way you would expect maybe a 12-year-old to be. She was clearly, I don't know if she was disassociating or what was going on. Was she under the influence as well? It's possible because I didn't see reports about her drug use, but mm -hmm. Jeremy clearly was a heavy drug user and she was obviously very influenced by him in many ways. So I wouldn't be surprised. Okay. The couple was taken into custody on the spot and they were brought to the local police station for questioning. Now, in her initial interview, Jasmine explained how much she loved Jeremy and she thought that murdering the family would bring them closer together. So nobody is denying anything here. Okay. Both of these two admitted that they were mad that the parents were trying to keep them apart and that the only way to get what they wanted was to get these two out of the picture. Now, as investigators started talking to friends and other people that knew Jeremy, they discovered that hours before the triple homicide, he was at his friend's house watching the movie Natural Born Killers. Oh. And this was a movie in 1994 that was based on a true story about a young couple that murdered the girlfriend's parents so that she could be free from them and go live with her boyfriend. And while watching this movie, Jeremy allegedly said that him and his girlfriend were going to do something similar. 
Now, it would turn out that they told like half a dozen people that they were planning to do this. Had a feeling. And you don't seem surprised by that. No, not at all. Do you think there is reason to take this seriously? Do you think, of course, when you look at whose fault this is, it's very clear there's two people that murdered three victims here. But I'm wondering, should these young people have said something? Do you think there's reason to have taken it seriously? Or maybe, you know, this was just normal banter. I don't know how seriously they really talked about it. You know, if they're watching a movie like this and he's making kind of jokes about it, it's like this romanticized, idealized, oh, yeah, we're going to do this, too, so we can be together. I could see why people would be dismissive of that. However, Mm -hmm. this is almost like when we talk about differential association, like how often you make associations and how often you hear things. Mm -hmm. So if he was regularly discussing this, regularly being serious about this, people could have made maybe a different kind of association. But in these cases, there's often someone if you, you know, you point to and you go, they could like it could have been prevented if one person had just said something. There's always that Mm -hmm. thought in hindsight, but you never know what the situation was at the time. And really, this is on the two people who decided to Mm -hmm. perpetrate these awful, awful crimes. And as we would come to find out, he begged one of his friends to help him. He told his friend, I don't want to do this. I need your help, but I have to do this for Jasmine. So who knows? Obviously, there's going to come a point where both of them have a little bit of differing stories here. But supposedly, Jeremy asked an undercover cop after his arrest. He was there was an undercover cop who was posed as another inmate in the jail. Uh And he was asking, have you ever watched the movie Natural Born Killers? I think that's the best love story of all time. Right. And because of these statements. These murders became known to some as the natural born killer murders. And we know how much the media loves a catchy name and how much we hate it. Well, that's unfortunate, too, because they probably were reveling in that a little bit as well. It sounds like Jeremy really wanted to identify with that because he had such a distorted view of what love really meant. After their interviews and really their confessions, Jeremy and Jasmine were both charged with triple homicide for the murders of Mark, Deborah, and Jacob Richardson. In addition, one of Jeremy's friends, Casey Lancaster, was charged with being an accessory to murder because she had driven the couple after the murders and she's also possibly helped destroy evidence, but it's not exactly clear what that evidence was. But since she took a plea, she ended up, I believe, getting a year of probation. Whereas, you know, obviously we're going to see a much greater punishment for Jasmine and Jeremy. Did they go to trial? Yes. Good question. They did go to trial and they did have separate trials because she was a minor that was forced. Right. We know that you can sometimes join trials, but that wasn't an option. I don't think it would have been a good idea for them to join the trial anyway. Depends on whose side you're on or it depends on which way you look at it. But I agree. That's true. Do you want to guess what Jasmine's defense team argued? That she was a victim, that she was taken advantage of by a a clearly older sexual predator and she was coerced into this crime. Yes, you're absolutely right. So Jasmine's trial was first of the two and this began in June of 2007. So by now, Jasmine was 14 years old and her trial only lasted a month, which is pretty quick for a triple homicide. Yeah. But really the defense, as you said, the defense simply were arguing that she was in an abusive relationship Mm -hmm. and that Jeremy had an influence on her. And that's the only reason why she was involved in this. She never denied being involved in it. Mm -hmm. And she, in fact, is the one who killed Jacob Mm -hmm. while they both admitted that Jeremy is the one who killed the parents. Now, the jury deliberated for three hours and they found her guilty on all three counts of murder. Mm -hmm. Now, what is shocking here is when we talk about her sentence, but I'm going to explain why she got. Well, do you have any idea of what her sentence might have been? Well, it's not going to be that extreme, I would say. She's a juvenile. So while we expect the most harsh punishment for the crime, she was 12 years old when she perpetrated it. So there's going to be a limit on what kind of punishment she's going to get. Yep. Well, the Youth Criminal Justice Act in Canada states that any convicts who were under the age of 14 at the time they committed the crime cannot be charged as an adult Mm -hmm. and can be given a maximum sentence of 10 years. Yeah. So this is a bit different because In our country, a youth can be tried as an adult. Correct. But in Canada, she was under statutory requirements. She could not be charged as an adult since she was under 14. This is unlike the United States, where not only can we try a juvenile as an adult and sentence them for life in prison, prior to 2005, juveniles could even be sentenced to death. 
Now, Roper v. Simmons changed that. That's where the Supreme Court ruled that you cannot sentence anyone to death who was under the age of 18 at the time of the crime. But this had me doing some digging. The youngest person to be sentenced to death in the United States was 14 years old. And what's interesting about this case, now this is George Steiny Jr. and this was in South Carolina in 1944. This boy was convicted of killing two white girls and after 10 minutes of jury deliberation, he was sentenced to death. Megan, he was posthumously proven innocent 70 years later. Yeah, I'm not surprised on either one of those accounts. Horrified, but not surprised. Yeah. And then as recent as 1959, the United States executed a child at the age of 17. So, Megan, this means that even if the courts believed that Jasmine deserved a longer sentence, their hands were tied and they could not legally sentence her to more than 10 years. Right. And what is your thoughts on this policy? I have like such mixed feelings. We have transfer laws, as you said, in the U.S. that allow juveniles to be tried as adults. And I really I'm, I'm not a fan of most transfer laws. And, you know, you have to look at the age. She was 12 years old. However, the crimes are extremely heinous. And she does seem to have been at the helm of making some of these decisions, lack of remorse. So what we're probably seeing, even if she was a good kid, is early signs of psychopathy or antisocial disorder, which is highly untreatable. I, I'm not a fan of the sentence. No, I'm not a fan of the policy okay. that under no condition can a juvenile be tried. I don't believe in blanket policies like that. Okay, well, let's see if this changes your mind. All right, so what ends up happening, Megan? She only spent four years in actual prison. So she got 1.5 years time served, and this is while she was in jail waiting for the trial. The part I do agree with is she spent four and a half years in a mental health institution where she was there for therapeutic rehabilitation. She was then released into the community under supervision until her sentence was up. So she spent about six months on probation. Mm -hmm. Megan, at the age of 22, in 2016, Jasmine Richardson was released into the community completely free with an expunged record. No, I don't agree with any of that. I, I don't know that nothing about that changes my mind because I already thought that she should have been tried differently. And I don't think the sentence was appropriate. And I do not think that being released with an expunged record at 22 to live her life without consequence is appropriate mm -hmm. at all. Well, what do we think happened to Jeremy? Oh, Jeremy's fate's going to be way different. Jeremy is a 23-year-old and they're going to look at him as fully culpable. So I'm going to say he was facing the harshest or one of the harshest sentences that could be. I, I think he was ultimately convicted and faced an extremely harsh sentence. Well, keep in mind, this is Canada, not the United States. I said the harshest <laughs> sentence under okay. Canada's law. I, okay. I was saying that just to be okay, clear. Okay, gotcha. Because I think in the United States, we would see life without parole. Yep. For, but I, this, I realize that should. that's not going to be the case. Yes. So Jeremy's trial was in December of 2008. Not surprisingly, he was found guilty of all three counts of murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 25 years, which means in just about 10 years, in 2033, he will be up for parole. Now, whether or not he will be granted yeah. parole is another story, but he is eligible. I'd ask you what his defense was, but I'm pretty sure there was an admission already. So his defense is probably going to be one of mitigation. I, I bet they pointed to his awful childhood, substance abuse, abuse, and they probably just hoped for mercy of the courts. That's why I was a bit surprised that he didn't take a plea. Right. Because he did admit to committing the crime. But you're right. I think they were just looking to mitigate based on his, uh, you know, based on his upbringing. Also, you know, yeah. his mental health, yep. his drug use. I mean, many people, so his sentencing was most likely due to the fact that he was an adult and Jasmine was a child at 12 years old. Right. Now, he was never charged with statutory rape. And I understand that maybe it's perhaps the sentence would have been much lower. So it's almost just instead of clogging up the courts with more charges, it kind of just got swept into his murder charge. But I don't agree with that. Oh, well, I think that they're, they probably had him on the top charge, but they also probably weren't very sympathetic towards Jasmine. And so in a lot of these cases, there is a sympathy towards the victim. But if she wasn't viewed in a victim light, mm -hmm. they probably decided not to, quote, waste resources on this crime. So I understand why you disagree with it. But I would think those are the practical yeah. reasons why yeah. it didn't happen. But yeah, she, you're right. She was a victim and an offender. Clear. Yeah, she was a victim for sure and very much an offender. We can't deny that. No. 
I mean, many people like the public consensus around this seemed to be that Jasmine would probably not have murdered her family if Jeremy had not convinced her to. And I'm not sure there's any evidence of this. It does seem like she was possibly pushing the idea. I mean, at some point, Jasmine did say that she was kidding around and Jeremy is the one who took it too far. But based on the evidence we have, I think it's too hard to really say there's no it doesn't seem like there's a mastermind. Yeah, here. this is not a clear case for sure. I think it probably is fair to say that if she hadn't met Jeremy, she probably would not have murdered her family. But that doesn't mean that she would not have perpetrated any crimes. Doesn't mean that she didn't have mm-hmm. antisocial traits. It does, you know, it just means that she likely, I think, would not have murdered her entire family. Yes, I think you're right. I think it's clear that something would have happened in her life that would probably lead her down a, you know, criminal path. But would it have been this? Probably not without him. Or maybe it would just be a different boyfriend. Who knows? As I mentioned, much of Jasmine's prison sentence was based in therapeutic rehabilitation. And a lot of people believe that Jasmine had the potential to be rehabilitated since she committed the crime at such a young age. But since she has never spoken about her opinion on the murders since she was sent to prison, nobody even knows if rehabilitation was successful. Mm -hmm. And despite being free and clear of the crime since 2016, Jasmine has never publicly apologized or shown any sort of remorse for the murder of her parents and her little brother. That's the part that scares me. That's the part right there. You know, there have been cases like this. There have been cases where young people have been involved in these crimes. But afterwards, when the full weight comes down on them, when they realize what they've really done, there is a fear, a remorse, a panic, a pain. Mm -hmm. That's the part that scares me about her. And that's why I wouldn't have wanted to see her in society. Mm -hmm. Not at all at the age. It is possible. I didn't mention, but she, as you probably could have guessed, she has a brand new identity. There's thought that she's living in Calgary, but nobody knows like what she's doing at some point. She did go to university, but maybe she hasn't come out publicly because she doesn't want people to know who she is. So it, it is possible that she has remorse and that she lives every day remorseful, but maybe she's doing in private. Regardless, I think, yeah, it's it's worrisome to not know where she is and what she's doing. Yes. And for a while, Jasmine and Jeremy continued their relationship after trial. In fact, Jeremy proposed to Jasmine through a letter from prison, and Jasmine accepted his proposal. But at some point, it seems that their contact fizzled out, and I would bet that that's because it was court-mandated and it had to fizzle out. But anyway, as of 2023, Jeremy continues to be incarcerated, now goes by the name of Jackson May. And Jasmine, we're just not really sure. She's been in the community for over eight years, again, with no public statement or any news on her whereabouts. Well, let's hope that we don't have any news on her whereabouts. I feel like with her, no news would be better. You know, I I hope that she has reformed and that she lives a very law abiding life and does good things. I really do. It just concerns me that I don't think justice was fully served with her punishment. So even though I wasn't comfortable with it, I wasn't there. And I don't know either what mental health diagnosis she might have had. Was there some type of psychiatric evaluation of her in the courts? Yes, she she underwent several different evaluations. She was diagnosed with anxiety and depression, but she was also diagnosed with two other disorders. Uh, One of them is conduct disorder. And conduct disorder refers to a group of behavioral and emotional problems. And these are often characterized by a disregard for others. Normally, you'll see the symptoms divided into four groups, and we see them all with her. Aggression, destructive conduct, deceitfulness, and violation of rules and social norms. Now, the thing that I find interesting with conduct disorder is it's a diagnosis often given to children and young teens, but about 40% of these individuals with this diagnosis develop an antisocial personality disorder when they get older. And that's what you were talking about earlier. Exactly. The other diagnosis that she was given at this point, because when she was getting these psych evals, she was between the ages, you know, starting at age, you know, 12 and a half, age 14 is when trial happened. And then she also spent time in a mental health facility. So she was pretty young when she was getting these evals. So they also diagnosed her with oppositional defiance disorder. Right. Now, this is also known as ODD. And again, this is a diagnosis that is often given to adolescents, well, children and adolescents, maybe early teen years. 
And this is similar to conduct disorders in that there's a frequent and ongoing pattern of anger, irritability, defiance towards authority, individuals being vindictive. And again, you see about 40% of children with this diagnosis go on to have some form of antisocial personality disorder. Now, I think this is one of those cases, Megan, where almost every single theory that we learn in criminology can be applied in some way. Yes. Would you agree? Oh, yes. I see a perfect storm here. Well, I was going to ask you, is there one theory that sticks out other than obviously we already talked about some of the psychiatric diagnoses, but other than that, what else sticks out to you? Well, I mean, you have to explain both offenders, right? So if you're looking at Jeremy, he was clearly an outcast. I think he's classic strain theory, lack of social bonds, labeled a bad kid. He is such a perfect storm. I think that what happened with him is that he could not find any peers that matched him. He not he did not have any self-esteem. He did not feel comfortable. So he sought out younger people who he could influence and who he could be the cool person, right? Because he couldn't achieve that kind of status in his peer group. So it makes sense to me that he establishes relationships with younger people. And then he bonded so strongly with her because it seems like he wasn't really bonding with anyone else. So these bonds mm-hmm. seem almost more powerful to him, even though he's a perpetrator and he probably doesn't see himself as a perpetrator. Yeah. The only thing I want to add about Jeremy is I mentioned that his mother was an alcoholic. Yes. It's also been insinuated that his mother possibly drank heavily while she was pregnant and that would lead to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which has a lot of the characteristics that you already described. Yes, absolutely. I neglected to mention there's biological influences here, and I I would certainly bet that that's at play. Also, we don't know what kind of abuse he suffered, head injury, trauma. Mm -hmm. He's a perfect storm. She's different. She's a child, so it's also harder because you can't look at her as a rational actor, even though you can look at her planning. She had bounded rationality. She believed this was love, as often Mm 12-year-olds do, without the appreciation of the fact later on that this isn't really what you think it is. You can't see the long-term consequences Mm -hmm. or that puppy love is puppy love. You can't, you know, you don't feel that at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I also think with her, you described her and I was thinking the whole time, conduct disorder, psychopathic traits. I I couldn't help but just Mm -hmm. think that she's detached. Certainly she was under the influence of someone older Mm -hmm. and certainly she's a victim, but I see a lot of, I saw so many red flags with her earlier in terms of personality disorders. Yeah. So I think personality disorders for her is probably the primary explanation. You mentioned a little bit about this, the cognitive perspective, Mm -hmm. this idea that besides the fact that her brain is not fully developed yet because she's a child, it's also, you know, likely she didn't have a proper sense of morality. Yes. Okay. That's hard to talk about moral development. It's really hard to know that without knowing her. But it always occurs to me when we talk about these cases, too. I remember being 12 or 13, Mm -hmm. and I remember very clearly my parents not liking my boyfriend either. Even though I perceived this as serious, it never would have occurred to me to the only thing that occurred to me was to defy defy them is to sneak him a note or, you know, call him or something Mm -hmm. of that. It never would have escalated in any way to that form. And I know that's anecdotal, but I think about that, too. That's why I see early signs of personality disorders with her, for sure. A disregard as really a disregard for for life, Mm -hmm. for humanity, for people. Yeah. And also general strain theory, right? Her parents took away the ability for her to see someone that she believed she loved. And since she lacked the proper coping mechanisms, Mm -hmm. we see strain theory a lot. We haven't said it in a while, actually. We used to talk a lot about strain theory, but basically it's clear that there are many theories that can explain both of these individuals. I sometimes see Jasmine incorrectly classified as a serial killer. Um, If anything, this would be a mass murder. But Mm -hmm. Megan, this clearly falls under a family annihilator. Yes. And I think it's the instrumental kind where the murder is a means to an end. Because again, she thought she needed to get rid of these people that were in her way so she could get to the end point to be with her boyfriend. Now, if we look at people that kill their parents, also known as parasite, she doesn't really fit the profile because these are usually males. Right. Even when they are females, they're usually a bit older, like Jennifer Pan. Do you remember Jennifer Pan? She I was about 24. Jennifer Pan, yes. But I know you've done some, you know, you've done a little more work on this than me. What do you think about, is she a family annihilator? Is she a mass murderer? Is she both? She's a family annihilator and she doesn't quite fit all of, with the statistics. Although when I asked what the purpose of killing her brother was later on, I thought about that and in, in fitting with some family annihilators. 
They have to eliminate the entire family. They have to disconnect. That family needed to not exist. And if Jacob was alive, that family still existed. Mm -hmm. For her, it had to be all or nothing. Her new life was not possible without the absolute ridding of her old life in its entirety. So in that regard, she fits with family annihilators. Mm -hmm. She is very young for a family annihilator. I've almost never seen anyone at that age. They do typically tend to be older. They do typically tend to be more male associated, although there are a number of female Mm -hmm. family annihilators as well. She's a little bit atypical in that regard, but if I had to classify her, I would classify her as a family annihilator. I hinted at this in the beginning, but this case reminds me a lot about Erin Caffey. Now, Erin Caffey was back in episode 10, and do you remember what happened in that case? Yes, Erin Caffey, I remember, was younger, but not quite as young. Was she maybe 16 years old? Exactly. She was 16, yep. And I know that she and her boyfriend also annihilated her family, but her father survived, if I recall. And she and her father have established a relationship. I cannot remember specifically, but I don't know if she accepted responsibility fully, but I did see, I can't quite explain it. There was a difference between her and Jasmine in terms of their attitudes towards their family, maybe afterwards. Yes. And the love that she expressed. And even if she wasn't outrightfully remorseful, I do believe that she has remorse and yes. more of a deeper rooted humanity. And when I covered that case, my interest was more in the forgiveness at her father. Yes. She tried to she killed her two younger brothers and her yes. mother. And her father was one of the lucky ones who was able to get help before you know he bled out. And it's incredible to see this man able to forgive his daughter for taking away everything he had. I wonder if he felt so lucky at the time, maybe afterwards, but he lost his entire family at the hand of one of his children. But he's really an incredible person in terms of the ability to forgive and move on. Yes. All right, Megan. So, you know, we already talked about did the system get it right? I mean, this is a really tough one. She was so young, but the crime was so heinous. So it's it's not clear cut. I mean, a lot of our cases are not clear cut. No, justice is not black and white. And in this case, it, it would be very hard no. for me. Do I believe that justice was fully served when it comes to Jasmine? I don't know. And there's still a lot that we don't know about mm-hmm. her background. While it's reported that she had a happy childhood, mm-hmm. while it's reported that she had a great relationship, there are things that possibly we are not aware of. Yeah. So I wouldn't feel completely comfortable. True. It does scare me, yeah. her sentence, a bit in terms of, her being in society. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm going to really keep my fingers crossed that she's not in the news again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mark and Deborah, they tried so hard to do what they could to help their daughter. And it almost reminds me a little of the Naomi Woods case also, because if you remember in that case, the parents were trying to do what was best for their daughter by sending her to a boarding school and then something tragic happened. So it's just sad when people are trying to do right And then things turn so horribly wrong. Yes, I sympathize with parents who have some incredibly difficult decisions in terms of these situations. It's not an easy choice at all. And nobody could have ever anticipated, I'm sure, what had happened based on their choices. This case was definitely very interesting. I think there are so many perplexing questions about how we treat juveniles, how we punish, what the causes are. Is there forgiveness? It brings up a lot of really interesting questions that we probably can't answer in just one episode, but at least we could, you know, give it some attention and give it a start. And really, I appreciate the fact that Alyssa brought this to our attention. Thank you all for listening. A big thank you to Alyssa for her help with researching this case and bringing this case to our attention. And Megan, before we head out today, we have two questions from our supporters. Okay. Okay, the first one's a little lighthearted, so let's go there because I think we can all use a break after that episode. Good. So the question is, what would be y'all's favorite holiday and holiday meal? I am a Halloween fan and my family actually does a Halloween feast. And she says her favorite spooky looking food is chocolate covered cherries that she makes that look like mice. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you would you like Halloween, don't you? Yeah. So holiday and holiday food are two separate questions for me. I'll just tell you my favorite holiday is also Halloween because I love horror movies and I like the excuse to sit on the couch for a couple of days with popcorn, lights out, watching my favorite fictional horror movies. You know, I love the Halloween stories. I love all of them. I like the decorations, the costumes. So I love Halloween. But my food, hands down, would be Thanksgiving because you can eat pumpkin pie for breakfast, lunch and dinner for two days. My favorite holiday meal is I don't mean to take what you say, but I love pumpkin. Oh, like I like the time of year when there's like the pumpkin bread. I'm like that person that goes to Trader Joe's and just stocks up on like the pumpkin cereals, the pumpkin raviolis, the pumpkin cookies to the point where I think 
like everyone in my family's a little sick of the pumpkin by the time like the holidays roll around. Yeah, I guess my favorite holiday would have to be Thanksgiving then as well because I love the food. So sorry, it looks like we have the same answer on that one. Very rarely do we fully agree. It's just because we're both foodies. I know. That's and you true. were literally <laughs> just talking about pumpkin bread this morning. So I get it. I was. I was. <laughs> All right. So the other question. I love that question, by the way. Yes, I do too. All right. The last question for today, it's about people that hunt, more specifically people who hunt for sport. This supporter wants to know, do you think there's a certain mentality required for that? Is there a parallel with serial offenders? We often hear of them killing or torturing animals in their youth, but it isn't seen as insane or abnormal for another person to hunt and kill animals. Furthermore, there are trophies with serial killers. The same is true for hunters. And, you know, she goes on, but she has some really, really interesting points Mm -hmm. about the parallel here that I never really considered. I know that you have some hunters in your family. So you want to start? So I I don't know hunters in my family, but yes, I've had this question before and I think it's a great question. It's one that I've thought about myself. So I think there is a distinction to be made between people who like to torture animals for non-utilitarian purposes that are just about seeing pain. Not that I am a hunter per se, but hunting does at least have utilitarian purposes. There are people, first of all, if you're a meat eater and you hunt for meat, I think that is absolutely fine. You know, it's hypocritical in some level to be someone who eats meat and then say, oh, but I would never hunt. So It removes a little bit of the hypocrisy. I have no problem with people who hunt to eat utilitarian. There are other hunting like purposes that are served in terms of there are certain species that are wildly overpopulated and are extremely harmful to the environment and also suffer very bad fates when they are mutilated in the wild. So hunting can also be seen in some ways as a humane way to control overpopulation. Not that it's for me, but I think when you look at hunting, you should look at some of the utilitarian purposes that it serves. What other people might not know too is that there was a law that was passed that actually taxes hunting. So outdoor equipment, hunting related activities, and those taxes fund a lot of wildlife conservation efforts as well. In that regard, I think that there is a distinction as well. Now, I look at big game hunters differently. I will say that. Even though I don't know much about the sport and I'm not citing statistics, I can tell you that when we look at hunters who are shooting things just for the thrill of killing something as a trophy and just for the purpose of seeing it die, that to me has very different implications. So I'll let other people draw their own. But that's what I would say in terms of hunting. Megan, well said. I have nothing to add to that because you hit all the major points there that I agree with. All right. Well, thank you for that. It's a, it's a really good question and one that I get in my serial offending class a lot. So thank you for a, a very thoughtful question. And thank you all so much for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include The Crime Wire, Medium, Investigation Discovery, CBC News, The Toronto Star, The Calgary Herald, and The Marshall Project. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.